Good afternoon, my name is Frank Key and this is Hooting Yard on the Air. Today I'm going to talk to you, at you, about wisps and clumps. Gaining an insight into wisps and clumps will not give you a complete understanding of the physical universe in all its matchless wonder, but it's a start. Indeed, I can think of few subjects which prove a better introduction. Some people might talk to you of toads or gazelles or coconut matting, perhaps, or of strange irrefragible lights in the maritime skies. But I'll stick to wisps and clumps with occasional forays into bee world. So, what is a wisp and what is a clump? We shall look at each in turn. A wisp might be made of smoke or some other fume, for there are countless fumes, gaseous and otherwise. One guaranteed way of seeing a wisp with your very own eyes is to stand next to a dying bonfire. If you go and stand there too early, while the bonfire is still blazing, perhaps with an effigy of Roman Catholic martyr Guy Fawkes engulfed in the flames, you will not be able to see any wisps, or much else, because the smoke will be billowing, making your eyes water, and if some scamp has placed any noxious substances on the bonfire, such as anything made of rubber or plastic, things will be even worse, and you may feel like choking. Indeed, you may even choke uncontrollably and topple to the ground, helpless, 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 as Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young were wont to sing long ago, on the west coast of America. They say that David Crosby's moustache is to be preserved as a national monument, but I digress. Basically, what I'm saying is, keep away from the bonfire while it is, while it is at its height. You want to go and stand next to it as the last embers are dying, for it's then that you'll be able to see wisps of smoke. What are their characteristics, these wisps? Well, they're light, delicate and fugitive. You will see a wisp rising from the glowing ashes and it will slink upon the breeze for a few moments and then it will be gone. All that is solid melts into air, according to Marx and Engels in the Manifesto of the Communist Party, 1848. And this is certainly true of wisps, which are hardly solid in the first place. Some substances take longer to melt into air than others, of course, and this brings us neatly to clumps. Clumps can be made of all sorts of things, and for the moment I want you to direct your attention to clumps of earth, or soil, or mud. Such clumps are often called clods, particularly by the visionary poet William Blake, who wrote The Clod and the Pebble. But I'm sticking with clumps for the purpose of this diverting talk, at least, I hope it's diverting. Now, there you were, standing next to the bonfire while it blazed, having arrived far too early for the wisps, and your eyes were streaming with tears, and you were coughing and choking helplessly, remember? And the next thing that happened was that you toppled over and fell to the ground, perhaps even rolling into a nearby ditch. Let us assume you are sprawled there, on your front, face down in the muck. At some point in the next few minutes, the effects of smoke inhalation wear off, and you open your stinging eyes. Chances are that the first thing you will see, there in the ditch, is a clump of earth. 
One glance at it should be enough to show you that it will take longer to melt into air than a wisp, but melt into air it shall one day, as all solid things do. We examined the characteristics of the wisp, so we ought to do the same with the clump. But I have to say that I'm reluctant to do so. I think it's worth celebrating the ephemeral and fugitive nature of wisps, much as one admires clouds, or falls of snow, or the all-too-brief life of a bee. But a clump is just a clump, really, a clump or clod, fit only to be kicked or squashed underfoot, crushed beneath the mighty boots of history. I do hope that you've gained a valuable insight into both wisps and clumps. If you wish to do any further reading, don't bother with the King James Bible, the authorised version, as neither wisps nor clumps are mentioned in it at all, strangely enough. You may, you may find a richer trove in Dobson's pamphlet, A Pamphlet About Wisps and Clumps, which I have plagiarised shamelessly for this talk. This is called The Administration of Lighthouses. It is with great pleasure that I have come to this charming, if windswept, seaside resort at the invitation of the Dobson Memorial Lecture Organising Committee to speak upon that most fascinating of topics, the administration of lighthouses. First of all, I must confess that it's a topic of which I'm almost wholly ignorant. Ask me about ponds or badgers, and I can rattle on like a maniac for days on end. But I've never even set foot in a lighthouse, and can think of no conceivable reason why I should ever want to. Much as I adore ponds, I am terrified of the sea, for the sea is a fearsome and horrible thing, progenitor of countless nightmares, a vast and unpitying force of nature, hideous to behold and murderous in its immensity. Still, I've promised to speak of lighthouses, and I'm not a man to shy away from a challenge. As luck would have it, my oldest and dearest friend, the Reverend F.X. Heliogabalus, has spent the best part of his life engaged in the administration of lighthouses, and he's been kind enough to share with me some of the more thrilling details of his career. You may think it odd that an ordained clergyman, indeed a Jesuit, should devote his life to such a calling. Father Heliogabalus spends his days on horseback, galloping across the land from one lighthouse to another, his pipe clamped in his jaws and his catechism tucked into the pocket of his soutane. The man hardly knows the meaning of rest. Sometimes he will accept an invitation to sleep overnight when a kindly lighthouse keeper offers him a mattress upon which to sprawl, but more often this most driven of priests will ride his trusty steed through the night, 
careering with alarming speed along cliff-top paths whose tempest-racked fences have been broken or uprooted, and where both man and horse are in constant danger of plunging hundreds of feet into the churning waters below. I beg your pardon, I must pause for a sip of milk of magnesia. What is Father Heliogabalus up to, charging from lighthouse to lighthouse? I've asked him this question many times, and he simply refuses to answer, merely clamping that pipe in his jaws and raising his eyebrows in a manner I find confoundedly vexing. Oh, there have been times when i felt like dashing the man to the ground in a fit of deranged violence, but he's much stronger than me, and indeed much taller. At seven and a half feet in height, he's bigger than most people I have come across as I wend my way through life on this blissful and miraculous planet. But I digress. The invitation to give this talk prompted me to ask Heliogabalus once again about life as an administrator of lighthouses. I tracked him down to a filthy harbour south of Hooting Yard, where he was being forced to pause for a few days due to his horse having contracted lockjaw. Heliogabalus was curled up in a chair in the corner of the veterinarian's waiting room. It was the kind of chair Michael Caine might have sat in in one of those mid-1960s films about swinging London. A number of sick animals, a badger among them, I noted, huddled together fearfully in the opposite corner of the room, staring wild-eyed at the Jesuit and every now and then emitting whimpers of abject terror. I have this effect upon beasts of the field, said Heliogabalus, languid and unconcerned. They regard me with dread, as well they might. I wondered whether to pursue this comment and decided against it. I have said that Heliogabalus was my oldest friend, but I admit that there are times when he scares me out of my wits. As it was, I had no opportunity to say anything as my old mucker continued to speak. I understand that you wish to know something of my lighthouse administration activities, he sneered. Otherwise you will suffer humiliation when called upon to speak of the subject at some godforsaken seaside resort. Is that correct? He did not wait for a reply, but, his voice growing louder and causing the pitiable assortment of ailing badgers, stoats, hedgehogs, lampreys, pigs, cormorants, axolotls and bison to start up a soul-wrenching cacophony of squealing, hissing, whining and other indescribable noises, he stood up, towering over me, and thundered, Imagine a world, a godless world, bereft of divine order, in which each lighthouse keeper is allowed to do as he or she wishes. Picture them, hundreds, nay, thousands of lighthouses, each running to its own timetable, each setting its lights flashing and rotating and signalling and whatnot, whenever the keeper feels like it. What is the result? Chaos, pure and simple. Chaos leading to shipwrecks, tugboat accidents, buoy disasters, general nautical mayhem, and the Lord knows what other kinds of marine catastrophe. Is that the world you wish to inhabit? Eh? You'd be no better off than one of these sickly beasts here. 
He gestured violently towards a tiny hummingbird with a stab wound on its head, which was trying to hide behind the veterinarian's chaise longue. These foul beasts, he continued, which quiver and quake at my every word. No, that's not the world we wish to live in. In our world, in God's world, we must make sure that lighthouse keepers do their work according to a plan. I carry in my saddlebags a thumping great book of over 900 pages. It is a manual of lighthouse administration. I have memorised every word in that book. Indeed, though it pains me to say it, I know it better than I know my Bible. So, as I traverse this evil land astride my sick and neglected horse, I go from lighthouse to lighthouse to ensure that the keepers are following the rules laid down in the manual, and if they stray from its commands, I smite them. Think not that the commands are onerous, most of them are simply common sense, but the devil works to undermine the sensible workings of each and every lighthouse. I have seen with my own eyes, for example, a lighthouse keeper of many years' experience failing to sharpen his pencil over a waste paper basket. Does he not know that wood shavings are a cause of fire? That by his actions he could burn down his lighthouse in a matter of minutes? Again, I have seen a lighthouse keeper using a frayed rope to tie his boat to his jetty. It's barely imaginable. Such was his excitement that Heliogabalus began to hurl pieces of cutlery at the cowering animals. Tell me, I ventured, do you just call round to these lighthouses and declaim instructive passages from your manual? Why, no, he replied, chucking a sugar spoon at a weasel. I'm not a harsh man. While in one saddlebag I keep the manual with which to strike terror into the hearts of ingrates and backsliders, in my other saddlebag I carry a selection of useful supplies, the items the keepers do not receive in their regular hampers from the lighthouse equipment warehouse. I bring them things such as gigantic rolls of blotting paper, hard-boiled eggs steeped in maple syrup, specially darned flags from every continent, buckets filled with a solution for the removal of dried ink from hair, reticules for the blind, nozzles to be attached to burst cartons. At this point, the veterinary surgeon entered the room to announce that the Jesuit's horse was fully recovered. Father Heliogabalus took my hand and nearly crushed it in bidding me farewell. Within seconds he was gone, galloping away to administer his peculiar justice tempered with mercy to the lighthouse keepers of the land. I'm glad I'm not one of them. In Tantarabim, the lopwit is known as the cemetery bird. By law, all graveyards in that land are situated at the seaside, 
Some, so one might expect gulls or guillemots or other seabirds to be most associated with the tombstones. Yet it's the lopwit, small, tufted, brightly coloured, that is invoked in the funeral practices of the people of Tantarabin. Why? As so often, we can turn to the out-of-print pamphleteer Dobson to help us answer this question. It's true that throughout his copious writings, he never addressed the subject directly. True, too, that his knowledge of ornithology was paltry and lamentable, and more often than not, wholly inaccurate. With Dobson, it's a case of knowing where to look. We won't find a pamphlet called Why They Call the Lopwit the Cemetery Bird in Tantarabim, but now, with the long overdue publication of Aloysius Nesting Bird's Mighty Concordance Dobsoniana, we know that the answer to the question can be pieced together from a number of sources. There is that impertinent little footnote in An Essay About Bowls, Dishes and Pots. There is a majestic sweeping paragraph in A Pamphlet of Majestic Sweeping Paragraphs. There is a ham-fisted pencil drawing in the appendix to Why I Smashed My Copy of Thick as a Brick by Jethro Tull into 20,000 pieces with a geological hammer and then glued it back together again. And, of course, there are the famous lines hidden away in Dobson's so-called uber-pamphlet, in which he writes... Lopwits flock to the seaside cemeteries of Tantarabim in search of spurge and soukbind. They munch these plants greedily, if one can use the word munch, to describe the way they tear savagely at the foliage with their beaks and swallow each beakful whole, having no teeth. For I can now reveal that in common with other birds, lopwits are innocent of teeth. Would that I could say the same for myself. Commentators have long been amused at Dobson's presumption in claiming to be the first person in history to point out the obvious fact that birds don't have teeth. Less remarked upon is the fact that he's completely wrong about the Lopwitz diet. These birds, which are small, tufted and highly brightly coloured, as we have seen, eat neither spurge nor soukbind. If they did so, they would surely die of poisoning, for they do not produce the enzymes necessary to break down and digest these particular plants. You can look that up in the most basic encyclopaedia of avian digestive systems. Who knows why Dobson could not be bothered to do so. Dobson would often bang on about his devotion to research, it made him something of a trying companion, for it was not beyond him to regale a tavern's worth of peasants with a harangue. Do you people realise, he might shout, apropos of nothing, that before writing my pamphlet entitled Notes on a Shelf of Test Tubes Containing the Blood of Squirrels, I read 14 different encyclopaedias from cover to cover, together with the collected works of Emily Dickinson, T. Lobsang Ramper and Harold Pinter. Of course, in remarks such as these, which have been reported to us by Marigold Chu and others, Dobson unwittingly makes clear that his understanding of research is, to put it kindly, somewhat witless. If he genuinely intended to say anything meaning about... 
If he genuinely intended to say anything meaningful about the blood of squirrels, what perverse impulse would make him think he could find any useful material in, for example, the works of a grumpy, bespectacled North London misanthrope? And yet this was always the way he worked, with his magpie mind, to the despair of some and to the delight of others. And that's why this new concordance will prove such a boon to scholars. If you want to know what Dobson had to say about the cemetery birds of Tantarabim, there's no point looking in any of the 89 pamphlets which mention birds in the title, nor in either of the two monographs on Tantarabim-related topics which Dobson wrote while holed up in that Milk of Magnesia warehouse in Winnipeg. Similarly, should you want to discover what the great pamphleteer had to say about obsolete punctuation marks, it may come as some surprise to find that there are at least 20 pages of pertinent remarks in the virtually forgotten early pamphlet Observations on Cows from a Great Distance in the Rain. Speaking of cows... It's worth mentioning here that in addition to the seaside cemeteries with their allotted lopwits, there was, in old Tantarabim, a single inland cemetery far from the sea, known as the Graveyard of Cows. On this occasion we need not consult Dobson, for the story is well known. Cows grazed in the Graveyard of Cows to keep down the grass, and when they died, the same cows were buried there. The mesotintist and amateur historian of Tantarabim, Rex Tint, unearthed a mesotint which showed the big signboard which stood at the graveyard gates, and he translated the notice engraved thereon, which reads as follows. Hey there, passer-by in the day or night, stop now! Rest your weary legs, and know that ye stand at the gates of the graveyard of cows. This plot of land was given in perpetuity to cows alive and cows dead by order of the grand plenipotentiary vizier of old Tantarabim, according to visions which beset him as he knelt in his hanging gardens, pruning his laburnums. No laburnums must grow in the grounds of the graveyard of cows, nor sankfoil, nor rhubarb, nor lupins. Nay, thou shalt find in this field only towering hollyhocks among the grass, and cows feeding upon the grass. And the cow shall feed upon the grass among the hollyhocks of these fields until such time as they perish. And each time a graveyard cow leaves this mortal world, six villagers shall come unto here and use big spades to dig for that cow a grave beneath the grass. Two villagers shall be named Ned, two shall be blind, one shall wear the hat of Buhucha, and one shall be a puny person. And they shall dig the grave for the cow in the night time under a black and starless sky, and bury the cow by morning. Now move on, traveller, wherever you are bound, but remember always the cows of Tantarabim, as long as you ever shall live.
Just a quick note to remind you that um, old episodes of Hooting Yard on the Air are now available um, as podcasts, for those of you who know what podcasts are. Um, if you want to find out how to get the Hooting Yard on the Air and other podcasts from Resonance, go to www.resonancefm.com and click on Podcasts. Or you can search for Hooting Yard on the iTunes Music Store. The nights are drawing in, and soon we'll all be looking for pastimes to entertain us through the long winter evenings. As ever, Hooting Yard is delighted to bring you some marvellously exciting but little-known parlour games. And um, I'm going to begin with, a, with the traditional Ukrainian bee-counting game. First of all, um, what you'll need to do is find a picture of some bees. Um, any picture of bees will do. And then you need to make um, enough copies for every member of the family or all the people who are playing. So everyone is given one copy of the B picture, a sheet of paper and a pencil. In alphabetical order by name, each player takes it in turn to count the number of Bs in the picture, large and small. So the picture you need to have more than one B in it. While they're counting, while that player is counting, everyone else has to stay still and not say a word. The counting player finishes by writing their name and the number of bees they've counted on their sheet of paper, folds it in half twice and places it in the pot, which can be an upturned hat or a cauldron or some similar container. Then the next player counts the bees in the picture, and so on, until there are as many pieces of folded paper in the pot as there are players. One family member is then nominated to take the papers from the pot, put them in an envelope, together with one of the pictures of the bees, affix a postage stamp, and address the envelope to the local official bee-counting person. Remember to write your return address on the back of the envelope. A second player is then nominated to go out into the dark night wild with gales and pop the envelope into the nearest post box. While they're gone, the remaining players place the rest of the bee pictures in a neat pile and tidy away the pencils. Some weeks later, the official bee-counting person will send the result, giving a definitive tally of the number of bees, large and small, in the picture, and announcing which player got closest to the correct total. The winner is allowed to choose another bee picture for the next round.
You can tell that's an old um, traditional Ukrainian uh, parlour game, or, well, at least a traditional parlour game, because, of course, you have to post, use, you know, use um, um, the normal post. You can't use email to the official B-counting person. Um, that would spoil the fun anyway. Um, that's all we have time for on Hooting Yard on the air this week. I'll be back next week. I do hope you've enjoyed the show and um, um, enjoy the next programme on Resonance 104.4 FM. Bye-bye.